0: Well, we've been seeing in the book of Revelation that God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is advancing, whether we're in times of judgment or we're in times of uh, great Christian prosperity. Either way, He is advancing His kingdom. And uh, I've given you uh, the first 18 verses. Uh, We're not going to go over all of those, but I'm going to be referencing different verses because we're kind of introducing the whore of Babylon. And I'll just read the first six for this morning. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who sits on the many waters, with whom the kings of the earth fornicated, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he took me away in spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of the prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, even with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And upon seeing her, I was tremendously impressed." Father God, I pray that as we uh, dig into your Word, uh, that we would find it to be an incredible blessing that you care for your church enough uh, to uh, judge uh, these kinds of systems that come into the world. But sometimes you bring these systems even to test uh, your saints and to uh, bring those who are approved out. We pray that as we Dig into your word, your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and uh, quicken our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have the outlines, you have in your hands a rather huge outline uh, that gives more information we're going to cover this morning, but hopefully we'll make it crystal clear who the identity of this whore of Babylon is. And uh, there's a good reason why I'm spending an entire sermon identifying uh, this uh, identity. How you interpret this chapter really affects how you view the rest of the book. And almost all commentators agree with this. For example, um, Alan Johnson, who holds to a completely different eschatological view than I do, says in his commentary, In a sense... The interpretation of this chapter controls the interpretation of the whole book of Revelation. Here's the problem. (laughs) There are so many different interpretations of who uh, this whore is. Wilbur Smith said, The interpretation of Babylon and the apocalypse has given rise to more differing opinions than any other major passage in this book. And over the years, I have... I've seen some very, very odd interpretations of this. I think one of the craziest views that I read was um, a guy who thought that the whore of Babylon was Dallas, Texas. (laughs) And those of you who have lived in Dallas, Texas might uh, approve. But this um, guy said, look, Dallas has seven suburbs, which is equivalent. It sits on seven suburbs. That's what the woman sits on, right? The seven hills. And uh, says that there are all of these strip bars everywhere, it's got enormous wealth, has ships of the world trading with it, has um, banking centers of the world, influences the world, what could be a more perfect identity? And others have said, no, New York City fits a whole lot better than that. Uh, I don't know why dispensationalists feel like America somehow has got to fit into uh, uh, Revelation's prophecies, but... There are many who do not see it as a city at all. Uh, I have read books that have said that it's the United States of America, or who have said it's the World Council of Churches, or the United Nations, or the League of Nations, or a future one world government, or American liberal Protestantism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And on your outlines, I've only put down the most credible of the interpretations out there. Uh, from very respectable uh, theologians, and I actually was planning to give footnotes uh, on that. I I left the footnotes out so that you could uh, trace it down. But I do respect those uh, commentaries. This is a very difficult chapter in Revelation. So what I want you to do this morning is do a little bit of sleuthing with me. I'm going to, first of all, give you some of the main theories that credible, respectable uh, commentators have put out then I'm going to go through a number of clues that we find in the, in the book and uh, see if uh, those clues will rule out all interpretations except for one. If you can move forward after this Sunday being 100% confident you know who the whore of Babylon is, it'll help you to uh, really apply this chapter better and understand the rest of the book. Okay, the first theory out there is obviously the one that I hold to. I'm a little prejudiced. I put myself first. Um, I believe the fornicating woman is Jerusalem. Okay, this book contrasts two women who represent two cities, and the cities themselves are the centers for two religious communities. So the first woman is very clearly identified in this book as being the bride of Jesus Christ. Christ, and she's connected with the Jerusalem above. For example, in in Revelation chapter 21, the angel says, come, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And what does he show to John? He shows him the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, um, adorned as a bride for her husband. So the first woman is the believing church. The second woman is the whore who has committed adultery against God, and God is bringing a divorce proceeding okay, a covenant lawsuit against her, but the center of this religious community is not the Jerusalem above, but the Jerusalem below, and it stands for Judaism. So there are two women representing two Jerusalems, and the whore is the Jerusalem below. So that's my view, and there are many scholars who hold to that. The second view is that she is the papacy, in other words, uh, the Roman Catholic Church This is uh, very similar to the first view in that it too sees this as a false bride that used to be faithful to God, but has committed adultery against God, has apostatized from God. By the way, this was the main view at the time of the Reformation. And while it doesn't fit all of the internal evidence, especially the timing clues, I will admit that there is an uncanny resemblance between this harlot and the papacy is just absolutely amazing. Now, Alexander Hisop, Hislop's book, uh, The Two Babylons, really overstates himself at places. Um, but it is astonishing how many of the Babylonian occult uh, kinds of things were brought right into Romanism uh, over time. Uh, strayed a long, long ways from its biblical roots. In any case, I think Chilton is correct when he says... The church throughout Christian history has generally understood that she is in some sense a false bride. And I agree. So the first three theories make the best case, I think, for uh, this, this uh, woman who she is because Judaism was a false bride, Roman Catholicism is a false bride, um, and then the third theory, apostate church in the future, You know, that's a a similar kind of an idea. And by the way, as we're going through some of these false theories, uh, even though they get the history incorrect, many of their applications are spot on. And I think the reason is obvious. Satan is boringly the same in his strategies down through history. And so it shouldn't be surprising at all to see the same fingerprints of Satan on Vatican City as that we're going to be seeing on Jerusalem. And it shouldn't surprise us at all to see some of the same statism and occultism that has crept into modern mainline Protestant churches, which is the next theory. This chapter is uh, going to give us clues on how to recognize the, the finger of Satan in all organizations down through history. So even though it's fulfilled in the first century, it continues to be very relevant in terms of spiritual applications. So even going through these false theories, I don't think is a a bad exercise. It's going to show you, hey, Satan's always been at work in similar ways, and we can recognize his hand in these things. And I've already mentioned the third theory. Uh, It says that the whore represents apostate Christianity, or a counterfeit church at the end of time, or an apostate ecumenical movement with or without Roman Catholicism. Uh, The next most common view is that she is the city of Rome that persecuted the early church. Uh, That was the view of Augustine and Jerome, so it's got a very uh, ancient pedigree. But as far as I'm concerned, this is very difficult to distinguish between the woman who's riding the beast and the beast itself. Uh, You know, those two just seem to be merged together. If the woman is Rome, how could the beast be Rome? Well, Moses Stewart who holds to this theory explains it this way. He says, Rome as a city can be seen in distinction from Rome as an empire, especially during a time of civil war. The city of Rome is supported by the empire, gets lots of money from the empire, which is why she's sitting on the beast. But the beast turns around, it says later on in the chapter, and devours the woman, writes. And so there's civil war. It comes and attacks the capital uh, city. And this view does have uh, a lot of merit, but there are several clues that go against it. Now, some have opted instead for saying that the whore is Rome religiously considered, whereas the beast is Rome politically considered. Now, this was the view of Bonson and Moorcraft, and it's a very credible view. It doesn't meet all of the internal clues, but I think there is a lot to be said for it. But right off the bat, I would say The ancients really didn't distinguish between religious and political in the way that we do today. In fact, they'd be mystified if you said one represents the religion of Rome and the other. They were so intertwined, they wouldn't have been able to think of them as two separate entities. But in any case, as we go through the clues, you'll see this does meet some of the evidence very well, completely misses other clues. Next most common view is that it's the world system that is governed by demons. And uh, that seduces believers. And obviously, there are good parallels, or good men would not have held to it. But what we're looking for this morning is 100% of the clues to be fitted in. By the way, I'm not going to bore you with all of the clues. There's like twice as many clues uh, in the three, next three chapters that we could go through, but I'm just trying to give you some of the main ones. Next view is held to by some futurists, especially premillennialists. By the way, it's not just premillennialists. Who are futurists? There are all like Meredith Klein who are futurists. They see almost all prophecy relating to three and a half years at the end of history. It's really weird. But Anyway, these uh, guys, not Meredith Klein, but some of these futurists <coughs> hold that the city of Babylon is literal Babylon that's going to be resurrected in the future. Uh, right now it doesn't exist, it's just a heap of ruins. But they say at some point in history, it's going to get resurrected. So when Saddam Hussein uh, was around, uh, he said that he was going to rebuild Babylon. And wow, the dispensationalists I knew, they were very excited. Prophecy being fulfilled before their own eyes, right? Uh, It didn't happen, but they were definitely hoping. The next view is that she represents all false religions that flow out of the Tower of Babel. Okay, obviously there are going to be some parallels then a lot of dispensationalist books say it's going to be a new world religion at the end of time with a false prophet. And then the final one that you'll sometimes run across is the view that she is the picture of all centralized big cities, not just Dallas and New York, but all centralized uh, big cities. And again, as you go through this, you'll see, okay, there are applications you can make Uh, to the big cities of the world, but I think as we go through these clues, this is probably the least likely of all of those uh, theories. So let's look at least at some of the clues. I'll say that the last theory at least partially fits the first clue. Uh, Look at verse 18 for the first clue. It says, now the woman whom you saw is the great city that holds rulership over the kings of the land. Tase, Gase. Okay, so the first clue is that it has to be a city. And the taste gaze indicates it has to be a city in the land of Israel. Now we'll let that Tase, that Gase part uh, go for the moment. Let's just focus in on the fact it has to be a city Uh, Chapter 18, verse 10 calls her that great city Babylon, that mighty city. And you see similar phrases in verses 16, 18, 19, and 21. Well, if it's a literal city that, in one fell stroke, wipes out five of the theories. And it's one city, not many cities, not all cities, and therefore I think it does away with the last uh, view as well. Now, one objection people give is, now wait, wait, wait. Can't the city be a symbol too? And my response is, no, that's not the way biblical symbology works. You never have a symbol of a symbol of something. You have a symbol of the literal event or the literal um, person or place. It would break the rules of biblical symbology that we looked at in the introductory sermons in Revelation. So everybody agrees the woman is a symbol. Question is, what does she symbolize? Well, we're seeing she symbolizes a city, so it's got to be a literal city. But the second clue is that the phrase, the great city, which is used to describe the whore of Babylon four times, chapter 14, verse 8, 16, verse 19, 17, verse 18, and chapter 18, verse 21, is only used one other time in the book of Revelation, and there John explains exactly what he means by that phrase. He clearly identifies the great city as being Jerusalem. Let me read that for you. Chapter 11, verse eight says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So it's not literally Egypt, it's not literally Sodom, uh, it's um, become that spiritually. Uh, Well, in the same way, verse 5 of chapter 17 says that the great city in this chapter is not literally Babylon. Instead, he calls it mystery Babylon. The word mystery means you wouldn't have been able to figure out who it was if God had not revealed it, right? So it's not a literal city Babylon. It's something that's revealed to be that. So it's spiritually or symbolically Babylon, When I uh, preached on chapter 11, verse 8, I pointed out the rule of first reference. And that is that the first time that John mentions a word or a phrase or a concept in the book, he typically defines what he means by that word or that phrase. And he clearly identified the great city of this book with Jerusalem. And that really should settle it. Uh, John ought to be able to interpret his own symbols. Now think of it this way. If chapter 11, verse 8 is describing a different great city, as some people say, why didn't he say a great city instead of the great city? And why confuse us if indeed the great city has an established meaning that points in a totally different direction than Babylon in the rest of the book? And why further confuse us with the numerous parallels that we're going to be examining between chapters 11 and chapter 17? Huge number of parallels. Why call it the great city of the land, taste gais, instead of the great city of the empire, oikumene? On so many levels, this clue completely rules out all interpretations except for the first theory. So we could really quit our sleuthing there But if you study eschatology very much, you know people don't give up on their theories quite that easily. (laughs) And uh, so we do need to give you more clues. Uh, But before I do that, let me deal with three more objections to the second clue that I see in the literature all the time. One of the, 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 the objections people give is that Rome was far bigger in population and size than Jerusalem So it makes more sense to call that the great city. And I would first of all say we'll get over it because God according to everybody's interpretation in chapter 11 verse eight called Jerusalem the great city. And the Old Testament uh, used that language as well. From God's perspective it was the great city. Religiously it was, in terms of influence it was, in terms of the temple and religion it was, in terms of that being God's abode. In other words that was his throne. It was the great city. In terms of wealth, we're going to be seeing, it was far more wealthy than Rome itself ever was. But it wasn't just the Bible that called Jerusalem the great city of all the earth. Roman and Jewish historians called it that too. Apian, a Roman lawyer and writer who lived around AD 160, called it the great city of Jerusalem. That was a Roman uh, writer. Pliny the Elder was a Roman naturalist, and he said of Jerusalem that it was, quote, by far the most famous city of the ancient Orient. The Emperor Titus not only called Jerusalem a famous city, but noted that its temple, quote, was famous beyond all other works of men. That was the emperor himself that was making that statement. Of course, Jews, as I mentioned, were used to speaking of it as the great city because the Old Testament did exactly that. One Jewish writer said that Rome destroyed a great city. No such sign has yet been performed among men that others should think to sack a great city. The historian Josephus lived in Rome for many years. In fact, he was a very close friend to the emperor Titus. But as he compared Rome to Jerusalem, he considered Jerusalem to be a far greater city. And here's what he said when Jerusalem was destroyed. He said, this was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame among all mankind. And there is not that great city, and where is not that great city, the metropolis of the Jewish nation, which was fortified by so many walls round about, which had so many fortresses and large towers to defend it, which could hardly contain the instruments prepared for the war and which had so many tens of thousands of men to fight for it. Where is this city that was believed to have God himself inhabiting therein? It is now demolished to the very ruins, uh, to the very foundations, excuse me. Now another objection that people will give is they say, well, look at chapter 18. Chapter 18 mentions one of the reasons why uh, the city of Babylon... Uh, spiritual Babylon is considered great is because of the enormous wealth that is there. And they say, if you're looking at wealth, Rome should be considered far more wealthy than Jerusalem was. But um, ancient history tells us that there was so much wealth that streamed through Jerusalem that even the emperor Titus complained, till at length you became richer than we ourselves. For the city of Jerusalem to be richer than the Roman Empire is astoundingly rich. And modern authors who have tried to estimate the wealth of Jerusalem and its billionaires have said that it really was the wealthiest city uh, in the ancient world. The Jewish historian Josephus explains why. And let no one wonder that there was so much wealth in our temple since all the Jews throughout the habitable earth and that those that worshiped God Nay, even those of Asia and Europe sent their contributions to it, and this from very ancient times. Charles Merivale's History of the Romans said, "'The palace of the kings of Judea "'I've already described "'as not less superior in magnificence "'to the abodes of Augustus and Tiberius. "'The whole city upon which many despots "'have lavished their wealth "'as far surpassed Rome,' at least before Nero's restorations in grandeur, as it felt short of it in size and population. Ogden says, the dedication of the millions of devout Jews throughout the world, seeing that their tithes found their way to Jerusalem, made this city the richest and most lavish city for its size in the world. And actually there has been, I don't know if you guys heard about the Copper Scroll that was found uh, in the uh, Qumran scrolls anyway it's a scroll there's been a lot of debate on it but everybody says that it's treasures of the temple exactly where they're buried but it's using code words and nobody's been able to crack the code of those things but there is so much wealth that is recorded on that scroll as having been buried at this location that location that they said it has to be a fable because never in the history of man has there been that much wealth Uh, stored in any one place. So anyway, (coughs) Rome itself uh, definitely considered Jerusalem to be the greatest conquest that they had ever made. (coughs) So other than population and physical size, Jerusalem was considered to be the great city by the Bible, by the Roman emperor, by Roman historians and Jewish historians. All of them said it was the great city. Now, look at verse 3 for another clue. So he took me away in spirit to a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, if she's sitting on the beast, it seems like simple logic says she's not the beast. She's got to be a distinguishable entity from the beast. And yet many commentators merge the two. Verse 7 says something similar. So the angel said to me, why are you impressed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast, having the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. Okay, so again, if it's carrying her, it seems like it's got to be a separate entity. And verses 3 and 7 receives authority from the beast. Again, same conclusion. Verse 16 is quite clear that the beast will turn around and kill the woman that has been up to that time riding her. It says, In the ten horns that you saw, also the beast, these will hate the whore and will lay her waste and strip her and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So any theory that merges the true is clearly wrong. But these verses we have just given, uh, read, give us uh, yet another clue that the woman must exist at the same time as the beast and must outlast the beast. I mean, if he kills the woman, obviously logic tells you that the beast is going to last longer than the woman. Well, the beast is, we've already seen, the Roman Empire. And so that destroys the theory that it's the city because the city of Rome, uh, I mean, the empire of Rome did not last longer than the city of Rome. So I think that completely destroys that theory. But Jerusalem, it fits perfectly. Now, as to the specific period of time that is in view, there are actually a number of time clues. Verse 12 makes clear that the 10 horns are 10 contemporaneous kings. And the other verses that I've listed, verses 7, 12 through 14, 16 through 17, say that these kings rule over uh, different parts of the empire. So what's going on here is you've got kings, 10 kings over 10 provinces of the empire. So, when you look in history as to when Rome was divided up into ten empires, you are really stuck with Nero and Titus, unless you want to go just a little bit before uh, the time of Christ, but this is clearly something in the future, right? The ten kings ruled over Italy, Achaia, Asia, Syria, Egypt, Africa, Spain, Gaul, Brittany, and Germany. Germany. But verse 10 is even more specific when it talks about the seven heads of the beast. Those seven heads were kings who ruled over the entire empire. Well, if they're kings ruling over the entire empire, they're the emperors. Because, king is a way of referring to an emperor. And it um, goes from Julius Caesar up through the seventh emperor, who would be Vespasian. When he says five have fallen, he's referring to the first five emperors from Julius Caesar up through Claudius who have already died. And he says one is living, so five have died, one is living, that would be Nero. So obviously John is writing this while Nero is still alive. Uh, Using the present uh, tense, it indicates he's currently there. And so the sixth horn is dealing with uh, first century Rome. Now, if the woman was riding the beast in the time of John, and if she's destroyed by the seventh head of the beast, then that narrows down the interpretation of the first century as well. Vespasian is the seventh head. So basically, it rules out all theories except for the first one. Next clue is given in chapter 18, verse 4, which says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so as not to participate in her sins and so as not to receive of her plagues. Now, prior to this time, God's people had been living in her, okay? The urgency of the need for them to flee from the city before judgment uh, fell can be seen in the expression of verse 8, <clears throat> therefore her plagues will come in one day. And we find from Eusebius' history that if the Christians had not left Jerusalem on the very day that they saw the armies encircling Jerusalem, they would not have been able to escape because the zealots did not let anybody leave uh, Jerusalem. The command to flee with haste, same language given in Matthew 24:15 through 20. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him who was in the field not go back to get his clothes. So that command to flee out of Jerusalem was heeded at the beginning of the war, according to the historian uh, Eusebius. But more to the point of weeding out theories, the only cities in the New Testament that disciples were commanded to flee from uh, in an in in impending coming judgment were the cities of uh, Israel, and especially Jerusalem. Now the next clue is that the whole city is being punished for exactly the same reasons that Jerusalem was being punished for. Revelation 18.24 says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, even of all who had been butchered on the land. So which city does Jesus say was going to be punished for all of the prophets that were butchered on the land? It's Jerusalem, and he said so several times. After telling the Pharisees that they had murdered the prophets, that he would send them more prophets and they would persecute and kill them, he said to Jerusalem, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, the other verses I've listed in your outline there make it quite clear <clears throat> that all of the blood of all of the prophets is being blamed on Jerusalem, and the same blood of all of the prophets is being blamed on Babylon. Okay? The two are the same. Otherwise, you've got double jeopardy, something that violates biblical law. Next clue is given in verses four through five. As I read these two verses, I want you to notice the colors and the clothing. <clears throat> and the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of the prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. This is an incredible slam against the priesthood in Israel that was governed by the the Sadducees. This whore is decked out what what Jews would have considered to be the attire of the, of the high priest and um, wearing a tiara just like the high priest did, having a cup in her hand just like the high priest did in his rituals. And these were the colors of the massive Babylonian curtain that Josephus talks about that were put into the temple, contrary to biblical law, were put into the temple. And if you check out each of these references, you'll see the color coordination is not by accident. Here are the priests wearing holy attire pretending to be serving the Lord but they are blasphemous in their claim. It's basically a parody showing that instead of having holiness to the Lord on their head, the priest has blasphemy. Now let me quickly go through several points of identity between Jerusalem and this whore uh, Babylon and because I've given you references that you can have For the future, I'm not going to cover them in detail. First, everybody agrees that both Jerusalem and the whore are given pagan names. Chapter 11, verse 8, Jerusalem is given the pagan name of Egypt and Sodom, okay? So it ought not to be thought a strange thing if another pagan name is given to it, especially when the Sadducees and the Pharisees had adopted so many uh, of the Babylonian occult practices into their worship. Their tradition is called the Babylonian Talmud for a reason. And all three of those pagan names are said to be symbolic names, not literal names. So we're not looking for a literal Egypt, Sodom, or Babylon. We're looking for a city who features all uh, three pagan groups, has the features. Third, both Jerusalem and the whore are doomed to destruction. And interestingly, both passages, both sets of passages, say that the whore, <coughs> and Jerusalem, the whore is going to be burned with fire. Now, why would it be significant that it's said to be a whore burned with fire? You've got to read this in light of the Old Testament biblical law. Now, in Old Testament biblical penology, <coughs> when a man or a woman committed uh, adultery or whoredom, he, or, he and she were ordinarily stoned, right? That's their execution was stoning. The only example of a person being burned in the Old Testament, probably after execution, was when a priest's daughter was guilty of whoredom. And she received this greater shame of burning because she was associated with God's temple. It was a heightened blasphemy against God. So Leviticus 21.9 says, The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the whore, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And these chapters speak of a whore being burned with fire. Well, since God is a God of justice, he would only inflict the penalties that his law prescribes. And in this metaphor, daughter Jerusalem is being treated as a priest's daughter clearly associated with the temple. Chapter 18, verse 8 says, she will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who has judged her is strong. Chapter 17 says, she will be stripped and burned. Well, this is identical language to the language used in the Old Testament when the ancient uh, Israel had become corrupted. God said that she had become uh, a a priest's daughter who was um, uh, committing whoredom and then said what she would be stripped, stoned, and then burned with fire. So I think it's a huge clue that points to Jerusalem. Next, both Jerusalem and the whore have prophets witness against her. Next, when you check out the references in your outline, you'll see that both Jerusalem and Babylon are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets. Now, we've already read some of those scriptures, but if Christ said that Jerusalem is guilty of the blood of all of the prophets, which he clearly does in Matthew chapter uh, 23, Luke 11, Luke 13, then I think that should settle it. Luke 11, verse 33, Jesus says, "...it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem." That's a pretty categorical statement. <clears throat> By the way, I think that's another statement that indicates there would be no prophets after AD 70. Um, <clears throat> when Jerusalem was destroyed, Jesus said, It cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Well, in chapters 17 through 19, you've got a ton of prophets who have died inside of the city of Babylon. Babylon. If Babylon is not Jerusalem, then you have prophets perishing outside of Jerusalem. In fact, all of them perish outside Jerusalem. But if Babylon is simply a third pagan name for Jerusalem, then it fits perfectly. Now, I hasten to say that I think apostles uh, were able to die outside Jerusalem, but not the prophets. At a very minimum, it would have to be the leadership of Jerusalem that put the prophets to death. Next comparison, both Jerusalem and the whore received their authority from the beast only only hinted at in chapter 11, but chapter 13 is very, very explicit. Uh, It's the provincial government, a provisional government of Israel that was set up by Rome, was given full authority to operate in the name of Rome over uh, over Israel. And it's also seen in that the high priests were appointed by Rome down through history, and they represented Rome. Now, of course, the Sadducees used this government entanglement to enrich themselves and to control Roman politics with their massive amounts of money so sitting on the beast not only shows the beast outwardly supporting the woman but the woman also guiding the beast and I think both things were true of Jerusalem and of Babylon why they're one in the same city one in the same city both Jerusalem and the whore have tribes nations peoples tongues connected with them and I dealt with that phrase extensively in chapter 11 Both Jerusalem and the whore have the identical phrase, there was a great earthquake associated with their judgment. Both Jerusalem and the whore experience lightnings, noises, and thunderings. Both Jerusalem and the whore are judged by hail. Now some of these things could just be coincidental, but when you start getting them piled up, one on top of another, it begins to look like identity, and when you have that coupled with the clear clues that we saw earlier, I think it's very strong. Both Jerusalem and the whore are judged by plagues. Both Jerusalem and the whore have their waters turning into blood. Both Jerusalem and the whore have the land judged along with the city. We've already seen that the the phrase, the land, is a reference to the land of Israel. So I think that argues, too, that the whore is Jerusalem. Both Jerusalem and the whore are connected with the wilderness. Now, Rome was not a wilderness, nor was the literal Babylon, but Jerusalem was in a wilderness. Both the land of Israel and the whore have a voice commanding heaven to rejoice over the judgments, both Jerusalem and the whore have a woe pronounced upon them. And again, so many parallels could not be just accidental. They're hints that help us to interpret the identity of this whore. Both Jerusalem and the whore have God avenging the dead over them. And when both Jerusalem and the whore are destroyed, Christ is declared in some way to claim kingship over the world. Now, I'll leave you to study Uh, those references for yourself, but obviously both cities are destroyed at exactly the same time, and it's because they are the same city. Now, I'll admit that most of these parallels are not sufficient testimony by themselves, but when you pile them together, you add them with the very strong ones, I believe they form a watertight case that Jerusalem is the whore, is given another pagan name precisely because she has the character of those pagan nations, especially of Babylon. Babylon. And I hope to put a number of other proofs up on the web, but I think that's good enough for this morning. Let me quickly go through each uh, phrase in verse 1. The first clause says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Now I believe it's the seventh angel that spoke with him, He's the one that started the judgments in A.D. 66 that we looked at before, but now he's going to be explaining to John why this whore needed such severe judgments. He's going to give a history. He's going to be cataloging all of the crimes that this whore has engaged in. Now You'll remember in chapter 15 we started reversing the order, at least up through the end of chapter 17, going backward in time. The next phrase says, come, I will show you. This is a phrase that was used of two women in this book. In this verse, he says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore. Chapter 21, verse 9, he says, come, I will show you the woman, the lamb's bride. But as we go through this chapter, you begin to realize that this first woman had been married to God once. She was once the community of saints in the Old Testament, was once called the faithful city. But she committed adultery and was being put to death for her fornications. Now, this implies to me that, first of all, that adultery continues to be worthy of the capital punishment. There are a lot of people who doubt that nowadays. But this image would make no sense unless adultery continued to be a capital crime. But this chapter also implies an understanding of God's incredible patience and forgiveness of the adulteries of Israel in the past. It was only because she repeatedly and unrepentantly committed adultery that God put her to death in AD 70. And so it illustrates forgiveness is also an option even in Old Testament law because that's what this whole book is applying to these nations. The fact that God waits this long shows God's mercy and his patience. You realize God did not put Israel to death for her first offense. Like Hosea, God forgave his wife. Anyway, you can see in your outlines that the Old Testament bride was called a whore a number of times, just like Jerusalem in the first century was being called a whore. And let me read you one of those verses. Isaiah 121 says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. So Israel was once faithful, but now they had become a harlot city. And the first time that happened under Rome, it led to exactly the same punishment. It led to burning. And so you can see that it's perfectly consistent with the Old Testament to call Jerusalem a harlot city or a whore city. And I've listed out similar passages. But even the one I just read describes what the church should be. Faithful to God, righteous, full of justice, protecting life. And we should ask, does that characterize us? And when we get to chapter 21, we'll look at the incredible pattern that God sets for the bride for today. Paul told the church of Corinth, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And it's quite clear in these verses that I've read that both women are explicitly likened to cities. Uh, turn to chapter 21. This describes the bride as the the great city of Jerusalem above. Starting at verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Very, very interesting. It's identical word-for-word language to what he introduces us to the harlot. And he's going to do it now with the pure bride. And it's not by accident. He's wanting us to contrast these two Uh, women in these two cities then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying come I will show you the woman the lamb's bride so he transported me in spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God so the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem are both called the great city he says I will show you the bride and the only thing he shows them is the new Jerusalem well the new Jerusalem is the corporate bride And it's stated so clearly in verse 2 of chapter 21, which says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So the city itself is prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So it's a corporate bride. So anyway, back to chapter 17, you can see that the language is setting up a contrast between apostate Judaism and Christianity with these two women representing two cities. Chapter 17, verse 1. He goes on to say, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore. Now, the Greek word for judgment is krimma, and it refers to either a lawsuit or the evidence that is being put together for a lawsuit. And what this angel is going to do is take John back in time to give evidence to explain why uh, this... Uh, angel was starting to pour judgments out in 866. He'll be um, showing the incredible evil of, uh, of Judaism. This is the evidence being brought against her. Didn't happen overnight. The compromises have been happening for over 100 years, really all the way back to the first compromise that Israel had with Julius Caesar. The next phrase says, who sits on the many waters. Now Jerusalem was landlocked So how could it be said to sit on many waters, or more precisely, on the many waters? Well, verse 15 tells us, has nothing to do with water. Look at verse 15. Then he says to me, the waters that you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Well, here's the thing. The beast is described with exactly the same language. He is composed of those people's multitudes, nations, and languages. So sitting on the waters is equivalent to sitting on the beast or sitting on the empire. This is why so many people think, hey, the woman has to be Rome. Who else could be sitting on the beast? But we already saw that can't be the case. Rome and the woman are two different entities. So how on earth could Israel sit on Rome and especially sit on the capital of Rome, which is what is symbolized on the coins of that day by the seven hills? Well, I'll deal with this more in a later sermon, but let me briefly analyze what it means to sit on the beast. It means two things. First, the beast supported Jerusalem. All over the Mediterranean region, which is the waters that Rome is associated with, uh, had supported her. How? Well, she had special favored status throughout the reign of the first five emperors, throughout most of Nero's reign, No other nation had the special status that Israel did. Israel also had special concessions on taxes. They didn't have to pay the kind of taxes, you know, that other nations had to pay, which really infuriated the other nations, really ticked them off. Israel also was allowed to implement its own laws rather than implementing Roman laws. Even the high priests were appointed by Rome and exercised all the authority of Rome. They were backed up. So she sat on him, getting a free ride, having many of the benefits of the beast. But a rider often controls the direction that a beast goes. And Israel did that as well. The Sadducees controlled Roman politics through the massive amounts of money. And in earlier sermons, I showed the the millions and millions of dollars that they bribed local officials with. They had money galore to be able to bribe with, but it wasn't just bribes, it was also bank loans. They were able to control almost every nation in the Mediterranean through their international banking and uh, drawing on their, uh, on their um, uh, 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 the people's credit. Chapter 18, will have a lot more to say about the banking of the time, but when the Sadducees are destroyed, international banking went up in flames. And negatively impact a lot of people. There were a ton of people who lost a lot of money uh, back in 80, 70. The Pharisees and the Herodians controlled politics in a different way. They controlled politics through relationships. They used people who were close to the emperors, uh, like, for example, Nero's court. I mentioned already before that there were two Jewish kings. There's a coin that shows two Jewish kings putting the crown on one of the emperors. I think it was Claudius, and um, Uh, There are other ways in which they had lobbyists. Nero's court was full of Jewish lobbyists, his wife being one of the chief people that Josephus and other people would use to try to get Nero to do uh, their will. So it wasn't just the Sadducees who controlled politics with money, so did the Pharisees and the Herodians. Ogden's commentary explains other ways in which Jerusalem sat on the beast or sat on these nations and these waters. He says, the high priest had authority not only in Jerusalem and Palestine, but over the Jews everywhere. So now he's saying, okay, this is another way. Every part of the empire, he's controlling Jews. Not only controls the Romans, but he's controlling the Jews. It was from the high priest that Saul received authority to go to the synagogues in Damascus, a foreign city, to bind Christians and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. This authority residing in the high priest was recognized, permitted, and upheld by the Roman government. Decrees permitting the continued exercise of these Jewish rights were published by the Roman authorities throughout the empire, demanding their recognition and respect under the penalty of law. With the authority and power of the high priest in Jerusalem firmly established, Jerusalem ruled the Jews throughout the world. This they did through an elaborate network of courts. The Jews dragged Paul before Gallio, the deputy of Achaia, but Gallio refused to hear the case, saying, if it be a question of words and crimes and of your law, you look to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. He thus recognized the right of Jews to judge matters pertaining to their law, even in cities outside of Judea. So the authority of Jerusalem as a city was universal. It extended to every city on earth which lodged a Jew. And because this chapter is going to go into a lot more of these matters in great detail. That's all I'm going to say on that phrase right now. But I would just encourage you to draw or circle or do some kind of a connection of verse 1 with verse 15. Verse 15 interprets verse 1. And I don't know why so many people miss it. He's telling you exactly what those uh, waters that it sits on are. Uh, let me make a brief comment on the connection to the angels with bulls. These are temple bulls. These are redemptive bulls. So you would expect there's going to be some salvation that's going to be reaching out as well. And uh, there is. It's, uh, a, it's a redemptive judgment. And uh, there was a remnant that he redeemed in the time of the Babylonian exile. There's a remnant he would redeem in John's day and beyond. So despite justice, there's, there are always hints of mercy. Two more thoughts. While the passage applies to the Jews of long ago, many applications can be made for the present. So for example, there are a lot of dispensationalists who think that the Bible commands us to support anything that Israel does. And they try to get their politicians to support anything that Israel does. And I would say, no, that is not a proper application of Scripture. Israel Jerusalem is under God's judgment. Judaism is under God's judgment. Apart from faith in Jesus, that judgment cannot be removed. But the parallels of this chapter to the unfaithfulness of mainline denominations in America, I think, will become increasingly obvious. So there's one meaning, many applications. And I believe, for example, based on one verse in chapter 18, God calls true believers to leave the PCUSA, that's the Presbyterian Church USA, and the ELCA, and the Methodist Church, and the Reformed Church in America, and the American Baptist Church, and other denominations that have apostatized. Now, too many times people say, well, this was the church that my granddaddy went to. I can't ever leave this. I wanna stay here and reform it. Reforming it is going to be a hopeless cause, apart from an absolute miracle of God. And uh, it is, a, I think, direct disobedience to chapter 18, verse 4, which says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. I mean, think of it this way. You, you might say, well, our local PCUSA or other denom- uh, member of another denomination, church, it's very conservative. And I say, yeah, but some of your monies are going to the mainline denomination. You're in covenant with that mainline denomination. And that mainline denomination has denied cardinal doctrines of the faith. They're involved in supporting homosexual uh, behavior. They're involved in abortion. They're involved in all kinds of things. And so you're going to be held accountable for your relationship to those, those kinds of people. They're not true churches. They're synagogues of Satan. And yet Revelation 18.4 says that God's people will strangely stay in those kinds of denominations. Just think of Judaism as being a denomination at that time. That's, the churches were in synagogues. They finally, he said, you've you got, got to leave or you're going to succumb to their problems. The whole book of Hebrews was written for that. So he says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. But people find it so hard, so hard to do so. Now, I, I have the same issue with Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy. Doug Wilson treats them as part of the true church. I do not. He treats them as erring brothers. I, I say no. The Westminster Confession correctly calls Rome a synagogue of Satan and treats it as the whore of Babylon, okay? Wrong reference, but great application, okay? There is a sense in which the Reformers were right when they said that Protestants who go back to Romanism are going back to the harlot though their eschatology was wrong, their application was great. The last thought is that judgment is necessary for the purification of the church and for the advancement of his kingdom. We should not fear God's judgments. They cleanse the land. They make it ready uh, to receive the true gospel. Uh, Any nation or church that begins to take on some of the demonic characteristics of uh, Babylon that will be outlined in this chapter, I think, should be brought before God's court. We need to be praying, Lord, either take them out, destroy them, or bring reformation, one of the two, but do not allow your name to continue to be defiled by these people. Such high-handed rebellion against Christ's throne cannot be ignored. So may we be a church that is stirred up to make a difference and to cast off any traces of this Babylonian whore that we may find in our midst. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and that it does indeed give enough hints and clues that we can clearly understand it and clearly apply it. And I pray that as we go through some of the remainder of this chapter that you would uh, open the eyes of our understanding to make a difference in being not only cultural critiques, but Uh, being people who are involved in changing culture. Uh, We bless you for the Sabbath day. We bless you for the uh, worship that we've been able to engage in, and we pray for your continued blessing on the remainder. In Jesus' name, amen.